Good evening. Thank you for calling the Iconic. My name is Patrick. How may I direct your call? Well, you can uh, direct my call to Jason D. Hamilton. Hold on just one moment, please. West prices and instant benefit. Hello. Can we start right now? Can we tip the Can we tip the ball off? I can't wait any longer. I I just I, I can't wait another I can't wait another twelve hours. What is it? Twelve hours from the time that we're recording here. What is it? Eight o'clock Pacific time. Yeah, it's about thirteen hours. The first four games aren't doing it for you. No, I'm not watching the first four games. Okay. Yeah, I'm protesting. Okay. 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 <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, it all goes down here, Mitchie. <sighs> All goes down here in a matter of hours. The ball is tipped. Where yep. will, where will you be in Columbus, Ohio, knowing that you don't have a game until local time? What six something on Friday? So what do you do all day Thursday, all day Friday? When I used to go on these trips, we would uh, we would search out places, search out places where my dad could eat. All he wanted to do was eat. Eat, eat, and eat, and I wanted to watch the tournament. Where will you be in Columbus, Ohio, watching the first round action? Yeah, uh, probably in the arena, actually, in the nationwide arena where Washington plays on Friday because the fact that Washington has open practice and I want to watch Utah State, I want to watch Washington, I want to, I want to watch others that are in the region. So I'll, I'll probably be in the arena between the floor and the media room on site watching some of the games uh if not there probably just back at the hotel but between those two places that's that's where i'll be yeah how does the feel what's the feel around the washington basketball team you were around them a little bit on the flight to columbus is there a loose feel you got a feel for this team yeah no i think it was a it was certainly all that i think there's a a euphoria about being a part of it um some excitement certainly and and you know it it at this point though i i think there's a little bit of of a familiarness of a regular road trip the difference is you know it's a team charter um you know the the motorcade police meet you at the tarmac and, and take you where you need to go so that's a little bit different than nice. a regular trip nice. um but the the real pageantry hasn't set set in yet and so I think uh, when you get there tomorrow uh, or Thursday um, and, and you get on the floor and it's open session and you get those media interviews, that's when it really, really hits you. And, and that's a whole different ballgame. Well, what's hitting me right now is that it's episode 32. It's dance time. That's the voice of Jason Hamilton in Columbus for the Dogs' return to the NCAA tournament. It's available everywhere that uh, podcasts are found, all podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, subscribe, listen, rate us. Also, make sure you click on each of the past episodes. You can do that either on your podcast platform or you can just go to MitchUnfilter.com. It really helps us if you click on all of the episodes, even the ones that you've missed. Guests on episode 32 today, J-Ham. Do you know the name Craig Smith? You better know the name Craig Smith. <laughs> I do. I do know Craig Smith, yes. Ten days ago, if you would ask me who Craig Smith was, I'd have absolutely no idea, Jason <laughs> Hamilton. Uh, yeah. He is the head coach of the Utah State Aggies, and uh, you'll hear from him on episode 32. The chairman of the NCAA Selection Committee, Bernard Muir, talking brackets. He also answers the question for us, Jay Ham, if the dogs had beaten Oregon... In the finals of the Pac-12 tournament, 
Well, they have gotten out of the 8-9 game. None of us wanted them in the 8-9 game for obvious reasons. Now you got mm-hmm. North Carolina waiting. So I asked the chairman of the NCAA Selection Committee that very question. I think you'll be intrigued with his answer. Um, former baseball GM Steve Phillips on a $430 million extension for Mike Trout. He'll be uh, with us on episode 32. It's all brought to you by Zeke's Pizza. Please join me at the Tacoma location at the UW Tacoma campus Friday at 3.50 p.m. for the Dogs in the NCAA tournament. I'll actually be there a lot earlier than that to watch the other games. $10 off a large pies, $3 off local beer, $3 local drafts, $1 off of wines and cocktails. Daniel's Broiler, whether it's a birthday anniversary or another special occasion, you won't find a better spot to celebrate with the best steaks anywhere, fabulous seasonal seafood, and the service and ambiance to match. Leshy Marina, South Lake Union, Bellevue Place, and now the second floor of the new Hyatt Regency in downtown Seattle. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest right here in Bellevue and the proud sponsor of Unfiltered Madness with offices in Portland, San Francisco, and the Napa Valley. Jason D. Hamilton in Columbus, Ohio. Are you ready for episode number 32? I am. Let's do it. Unfiltered. It's okay to have a game plan going in, but when you're so stubborn and unwilling to get away from it because the other team is essentially daring you to do so, then we get into stupidity. Unfiltered. Guess that's what really kind of infuriates me that we go to the offseason after a game that the quarterback was really not given a chance to win the football game for you that's a quarterback who's the face of the organization that's a quarterback who as I say in a couple of years or in a year they're gonna give I don't know 25 30 million dollars a year to and yet it just feels to me like they took the ball out of his hands Mitch is unfiltered All right, Jason Hamilton in uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Before we get off and running in episode 32, I happen to know because I watch the stats on these on these shows, on these episodes, that a lot of people will listen to episode 32. A lot of people are listening to our voices right now on Thursday morning on their way into work. So there might still be some time for people to get their brackets completed and into us in unfiltered madness at MitchUnfiltered.com to win one of the 44 great prizes. So if you're listening to this before, let's say, 9 o'clock in the morning Pacific time on Thursday, get to your office, get to your computer, get to your phone. Don't do it while you're while you're driving. And get your brackets in. Last call for last-minute Larry's for the contest. Your bracket is completed. Isn't that right? My bracket is is completed, yes. How does it look? How do you feel? Oh, you know, I'm I'm undefeated. <laughs> I feel great. I feel great. Okay, now ask me, uh, ask me, come you know Friday night. Well, that might be a different story. Before we get into our brackets, what was your feel? What was your takeaway from the big Daniels event the other night? Our first ever uh, dinner with uh, with seventy, and we celebrated the NCAA tournament. How'd you enjoy yourself, and what are your thoughts taken away? You know. Honestly, I, I didn't know what to expect. Um, I knew it was going to be great because it was at, at Daniel's, and, and that's always a, a wonderful place to have a meal. But um, it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. 
I think people that were there, I mean, it sold out within minutes, and I think the people that were there really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought you did an excellent, excellent PowerPoint, and I know for people <laughs> who are listening to this right now are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's stop this whole business right here. Yes, Mitch Levy did a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, I, I will say that I ran the clicker, though, to move the slides, but – but uh, Mitch Levy put together a PowerPoint presentation on winning your office bracket pool and uh, did, a, did a great job. Did it, make overall, any, did it make, before you get to the overall, did it make any sense yeah. what I was trying to say? Did it make any sense oh, to you? A hundred percent. And I think, you know, you probably need to give a Cliff Notes version of yeah. that yeah. And, and that philosophy, which, you know, I, like I said, I, uh, you know, I think I subscribe to you for the most part about about selecting favorites in the first, in the, especially in the first round. But um, no, it was it was it was great. It was it was a, a bunch of fun, and, and I'm I'm really glad that um, you agreed to do it, and I'm really glad for the people that were there. And I, I you know, I, I'm 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 hopeful hopeful for other events like it in the future. I was driving home uh, from the event, and I really enjoyed it too, and really appreciative of not only Daniels but everybody who came. And, and I had a great time. If I had a regret, if I had a do-over, I thought it was a little too emotional. I, I tried to promise myself driving there that I was going to try not to become emotional over my little bumpy journal, my, my bumpy journey, um, or how important the NCAA basketball tournament somehow became in my life. So I, I didn't quite accomplish that. It was a, a little bit too emotional for me, but... Um, I had a great time too, and I think perhaps maybe there's more of these types of dinners around the block. What do you think? Yeah, no doubt. And, and just to you know, to, to respond to that, I didn't think that you were emotional in a way that was. I mean, it was all very. Um, you know, it's hard to describe for people that weren't there. But when you start talking about what the tournament means to you and the years and years that you spent going to those tournaments with your father. Uh, obviously, I mean, you know, people who have listened and understand that and who have had experiences, whether it be the NCAA tournament or others, that has been tradition in their family. And, and for that to change, I, I thought it was very appropriate the way that you described it and how you felt. Well, it means a lot to me, and I can talk a little bit about it here on the podcast for the people that weren't there. I'm assuming there were a few people that are in the listening audience that weren't at the uh, <laughs> Daniel's Broiler dinner yeah. the other night. Uh, but I want to kind of give you the lead. You're a player. I, I would have loved to have been a player. Um, it was pretty. It was decided pretty early that I was never going to be a player in the NCAA tournament. For you, um, that wasn't necessarily the case. So, you know, kind of sum up what it means to go to the arena on Friday night to broadcast an NCAA tournament game uh, your alma mater, you played there three years, you coached there, you broadcasted there, but you never got a chance to play under the bright lights of one shining moment in the NCAA tournament. What does the tournament, and what did the tournament mean to you as a kid before, oh. you, before you went, I mean, were you more of an NBA kid or were you a, were you a college basketball guy? Tell us, tell us what it meant in your world. Well, I think I, I've said on a number of occasions and people know that I was a ball boy for the Sonics. So I, I, I loved the NBA was, was, was there for 41 games a year for five years as a little kid. Um, and you know, my whole dream in life was to play in the NBA, but you know, you first had to do all the steps, right? You, yeah. you know, 
learn how to play the game and play it well and be a good high school basketball player and then have a chance to be a good college player with that chance potentially to be a pro player. But once I started to get um, in junior high and then into high school, college basketball became everything. And, and I think part of it, too, was you know being in Seattle and having the, the final four here, um, you know, in in 89 and set the city on fire i mean just it was a, a buzz about it there's felt like millions of people uh, descending upon seattle so that really changed the way that i thought about college basketball and um you know had had the chance to get down there a little bit and and you know it was it was just a great experience so to, the, the thought of ever playing in that was really a one of my strong goals i mean you know getting a scholarship was number one but then being able to play in that and so you know we were really really close uh my senior year we beat arizona at arizona um you know it, it looked like we were we were on our way we ended up losing the next game in tempe to arizona state but then had some really close chances to close it out we lost on senior night uh, against Arizona uh, by two, and then uh, on a buzzer beater uh, at UCLA, which kind of you know turned the tide, and we went to the NIT. I, I can't tell you um, how disappointing it was. Uh, you know, y- you see one shining moment, and you see the kids that are laying on the ground and crying and all that stuff. And when we didn't have a chance to go to the NCAA tournament, I mean, literally, you feel like everything you worked for as great as the experience was, there's a little bit of a void there. So for me as a college coach to be able to, to go finally and be a part of it and, you know, get to the sweet 16. And that's really, that's really when you're advancing and when you get to the second weekend and for, for, you know, you've been to the third weekend in the final four, it's a different deal. It just is, you know, I'm rambling now, but it, it is, it's everything. And it's, uh, to me, it's the best three weeks in sports and there's, there's just nothing like it. And the Richard Hamilton, uh, play that everybody remembers that goes yeah. down in Washington history, an infamous play in Washington history. Yeah. You were you were on the sidelines. You you probably remember that day, that night vividly. I, I do. I mean, you know, it's a it's one of those weird things where you, know, you win a first and second round, Xavier and, and Richmond, and you're, you're matched up against UConn, and UConn's got the whole reputation, and we. We led that game. We played so well in that game. Donald Watts was really good. Todd McCullough was really good. Um, just for the want of a rebound and the bounce of a ball, UConn had three chances, and we, we we dang near had a block shot. Almost got our hands on it. Got a rebound, and you know Rip Hamilton missed an, uh, an original one, and ball gets bounced around, and he picks it up the third time on a fadeaway, and 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 knocks it down at the buzzer for to to beat us by one, and you know. Uh, no one gave us a chance to to beat UConn, but when you're on that magical ride and you're going to see one of these teams is going to catch fire like that, uh, you know, an, an unknown. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that we were uh, virtually un- unknown, but it's somebody that's a lower seed that is not expected to be there. You, know, you get there, and and all of a sudden, it's uh, you just feel like you can win the whole thing. And I remember having a conversation with with uh, Shaman Williams, if you remember oh, Shaman sure, Williams. Sure, I do. Played for the Sonics. Yeah. 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 I, I remember having a – because North Carolina was in our bracket, and I remember having a conversation with Shaman Williams where I said to him, had we gotten past UConn, we were going to beat North Carolina. <laughs> and, and, and literally, he looked at me like I had forehead. <laughs> but that's the, that's the kind of 
euphoric feeling that you get on where you feel like you just can't you can't be beat you, you just you feel like it's just uh, Mitch it's, it's it's so much fun it just really is and I'm really excited for this group of kids to to be able to experience that especially what they've been through uh, going two and 16 a couple of years ago and, and now being able, able to play in the NCAA tournament well it's as you say the best three weeks in sports and it means a lot to a lot of people it means a lot to me for different reasons than it means what it means to you. I told the story the other night. I'll tell it again here real quickly. Uh, I was a senior at Syracuse in 1989, and um, I was in the office of Athletic Director Jake Krauthammel, who and I, he and I worked on getting the women's basketball games on radio, the women's basketball games for Syracuse. They've actually got a pretty good program now. Um, we're never on radio, and so I was the sports director of the campus radio station, and I was trying to raise money, and I did raise money to get the women's games on radio for the first time, and so the athletic director, Jay Crowdhamel, he kind of took a liking to me uh, because I was helping him with this, and I was in his office in March of 1989, I'll never forget it, and he asked me if I could get to Minneapolis, Minnesota, site of the Sweet 16, the Syracuse men had just won the first two rounds of the tournament. So it was like the Monday or the Tuesday in between, right? I said to him, I, I have no way of getting to Minneapolis, Minnesota. I don't have any plans to go to Minnesota. He said, here's four tickets. And he slid across four tickets for the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. And he says to me, these are mid-court seats. If you can somehow get there, feel free to take these tickets as a show of appreciation for all that you've done for the women's basketball program. And I was like, oh, my God. But how in the world is a senior in, in college going to Minneapolis on three days' notice? I'm not getting in a car and driving, and I certainly don't have the money to buy a plane ticket. So what does, what does a kid in that kind of situation think first? He says to himself, maybe, maybe mom and dad can bail me out. And yeah. so I called home, and I got my, fa- my, my father at the time in 89 had become a huge Syracuse fan because he was a huge basketball guy. He played in high school. He tried to walk on on his college team. He was a he was a basketball player, and he loved college basketball. But he really had no no teams to root for because he was kind of not an Ivy League guy, mm-hmm. and so he kind of inherited. He adopted the Syracuse basketball program, and by then, four years into my my career at Syracuse, uh, he he loved Syracuse basketball. So I thought I could convince him to come to Minneapolis. And I called him, and I remember the phone call as if it were yesterday. He gets on the phone, and I said, Dad, how would you like to go to the Sweet 16 instead of watching it at home? Come meet me. We'll both fly to Minneapolis, and we'll enjoy the Sweet 16 together. And his answer was, why the fudge? But it wasn't fudge. (laughs) Why the fudge would I want to leave South Florida in March fly to Minneapolis, Minnesota in like 10 degree weather to watch a basketball game that I can watch on TV and get a better perspective on TV. And I said, good point, but here would be the answer. The answer would be to see your son. You could be with your son. And he said, ah, see, I knew you would pull something like that. All right. (laughs) All right. And he met me in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This was March of 1989. We met in the airport. He flew up from Florida. I flew in from Syracuse. And we went to the games. They played Missouri in the Sweet 16 and beat them. And then they played that Illinois team that you remember in 89. Kenny Battle, Kenny, Kendall, yep, Gill. Kendall Gill. Yep, mm-hmm. I, think, I think Marcus Liberty might have been on that team. Maybe, oh, wow. may, maybe, maybe not. It was a really good Illinois team. Uh, in the Elite Eight, the Great Eight. 
and it was a great game and they lost. Now, the irony of that is had they won, where would we have gone the next week? That's right, to Seattle, like I just mentioned. <laughs> we would have been. I didn't even know where Seattle was in 1989, let alone yeah. going to Seattle. But Syracuse lost, and Illinois went to the Final Four. My father and I, after that game, went back to the airport. He got on a plane to go to, back to Florida, and I got on a plane to go back to school in Syracuse. And I just remember him giving me a hug and telling me how much fun he had, and he whispered in my ear, let's do this again next year. That was March of 1989. For the next 25 years, he and I never missed a tournament game together. We were at every single turn. I was trying to figure out the other day how many cities. Uh, first round, second round, Sweet 16s, Final Fours, uh, Big East tournaments, six, seven overtime games against UConn. You name it, we were there for 25 straight years. Yeah. We did this together. Now you understand why I get emotional talking about the NCAA tournament and what the NCAA tournament means to me. It it reminds me of the greatest moments that I ever had with my dad. And it all started on that March day phone call uh, home to come to the Sweet 16. So mm-hmm. when those games begin and the ball is tipped, uh, I will have all kinds of different emotions, not to mention the least of which, which is, I love college basketball, and I just love the one-and-done, neutral floor, anything-can-happen situation. Right, right, So right. nothing really better than that. So what I, what I think we should do, we got three interviews today, and I think that everybody's going to enjoy these interviews. The coach of Utah State, the chairman of the NCAA Selection Committee, and Steve Phillips to talk a little bit about Mike Trout, the contract, and Steve's going to give us his final four picks what I figured we'd do in our final segment is go over our brackets a little bit and kind of get on record here as to who we like, who we're, who we're taking to the Final Four. We'll look at each of these regions and come up with a, a little bit of a, a look at what our brackets look like. Um, but before we do that, we've got to name the show. Would you like to name the show? I was waiting to see what you were going to say about that. Yes, I'd like to name the show. Uh, I, I believe last last show I, I oh. went on record to, to to give it its final name and went oh. against the Cam Chancellor deal. And so I was waiting to see whether or not you were actually going to try to put, put this on me, and that was where you, the pause came from. <laughs> and I'm not going to allow that to happen. Uh, 32 is a ball buster. You know that, right? I mean, I, I think when you that. when you set upon when you set out to do these types of things, I think that uh, there are certain numbers that are really big booby traps. This one, mm-hmm. this one is one of the all time booby traps. So let me go through. Uh, I'm going to need your help if you're making me do this. I still need your help and uh, I'll, in the I'm, discussion. I'm here for you, Mitch. Okay, good. I'm here for you. Yeah. There's no question who 32 of the Sonics was. Mm-hmm. Downtown Freddie Brown. He's, I think, the only man to ever wear the the number. Believe it or not, I think it was retired after he wore it. It's either retired or nobody else has worn it. 1972 to 1984, downtown Freddie Brown. You realize that most of the years that he played, there was no three point shot. Right. Only his last three or four years was there actually a three point shot uh, that uh, everybody will remember. Downtown Freddie Brown, part of the 1979 championship team, I do believe. For the Seahawks, there's two worthy of mention. John L. from your youth. 
John L. Williams, the the fullback, eight-year career for the Seahawks, uh, was a really good receiving fullback out of the backfield, as I recall. I think he finished with 4,579 yards in his eight-year Seattle Seahawks career wearing number 32. So you got John L. You remember John L.? I do, yeah. Do you remember any other 32s that that carried the ball for the Seahawks? Um, not off the top of my head, no. If I told you that there was a Seahawks running back who gained 1,200 yards in three consecutive years wearing 32. Would you believe me? Sure. It's true. Uh, in 1998, 1999, the year 2000, uh, Ricky Waters. Oh, that's right, Ricky Waters. Boy, I would have. it would have taken me some time to get to that one. 1239 and 98, 1210 and 99, 1242 and 2000. Throw in... 52 catches, 40 catches, and 63 catches out of the backfield in those years. Mm-hmm. Um, I would contend, I know that John L. Williams is kind of a fan favorite because he was here for a long time. Uh, I might contend that Ricky Waters is the best 32 in Seahawks team history, but it doesn't really matter because neither of those guys are going to take a sniff. No, none of these guys are sniffing no. the all-time no. 32. No. Um, the Mariners, it's pathetic. Absolute, and I find myself saying this every single episode, but it's pathetic. The best I could find was Marco Gonzalez, who's on the team now. Uh, can I, can, yes, I, can yes. I interject something sure. about uh, specifically about the Mariners? Yeah. Pretty much every episode, unless you're a Hall of Fame caliber guy, <laughs> we're going to have a real problem with the Mariners, just historically speaking. But I feel like you I should include them, shouldn't I? You have to. You have to. But I feel badly for the, the franchise, the organization, that basically every time you're bringing up guys like Bobby Ayala. That's right. It's like, come on. I'm serious. I can only tell you who had the number. I mean, a lot of people were 32, but you would have never heard of most of them. Right. Um, there was a guy back in the day named Eddie Vandenberg. He was a left-handed pitcher, wore 32. Dennis Martinez, you might remember. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he had a cup of coffee with the Mariners worth 32. And Marco Gonzalez currently worth 32. There's nothing to speak of. Let's move on. I got a guy that you wouldn't ordinarily think of that needs to be a little bit in the conversation, at least mentioned. Okay. How about out of the University of Washington? Hugh okay. McElhenney. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number 32, a 1951 All-American from the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's it. That's the locals, and now it gets really tough. You pick, since you're not going to pick the guy, you pick football, baseball, or basketball? I'm going to start with football. You're going to start with football. All right, I got a bunch. 12,243 yards, Super Bowl MVP, six-time Pro Bowler, two-time first-team All-Pro, 32 of the Raiders. Marcus Allen. 11,236 yards, 4.7 yards per carry, five-time Pro Bowler, five-time first-team All-Pro, most valuable player in 1973, now, unfortunately, much more known for what he did or didn't do off the field. The juice. O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. 12,120 yards, 4.1 yards a carry, 91 touchdowns, a four-time Super Bowl champion. 
I'll say that again, a four-time Super Bowl champion and a Super Bowl MVP and a nine-time Pro Bowler. He also played for a half a second with the Seattle Seahawks at the end of his career. Number 32. Franco Harris. Of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Franco Harris. Wow. Have I impressed you yet? You have. You have. And I'm, I really appreciate that last little bit about the Seattle Seahawks because I was, I was like, who is this one? <laughs> I was wondering. And then, <laughs> and then when you threw in the Seahawks, I, you know, of course I got that one. Okay, so those are three really strong candidates. And I don't believe, as strong as they are, any of them hold a candle to the absolute NFL representative, football representative. And I don't even want to say football. Representative who, in part, played football. NFL champion 1964. Nine-time Pro Bowl. Let's just put it this way. This guy played in the NFL for nine years. He was a first-team All-Pro in eight out of the nine years. <laughs> and in the ninth year, he was second-team All-Pro. He was also the rushing leader in eight out of the nine years and including his last year as, a, as an NFL football player. He averaged well over five yards per carry. He was the greatest college football player in America at the same time as he was the greatest lacrosse player in America. And he also, something that you didn't even know about this guy, is he averaged 15 points per game on the Syracuse basketball team as a sophomore. True story. Yep. Jim Brown. 15 a game as a sophomore, 12 a game as a junior. He was a 10-time varsity letter at Syracuse in four different sports, basketball, football, lacrosse, and track. Unbelievable. He's Jim Brown. He's number 32. Now, you just you just simmer on that, on those numbers and those details okay. a little bit. Okay. I mean, potentially we're talking about, I know a lot of people yelling at their podcast, yelling at their radio, saying, okay, he's a Syracuse guy, so Mitch, no. This guy, very possibly, is the greatest athlete has ever walked the earth. That's a strong, really strong statement that I will have a lot of problems with, but that's okay. I just told you that he was the best lacrosse player. He was the best football player. He was a, he, he was a, a fifteen there, point there, per game score. Yeah, there's a guy named Jackie Robinson that's online oh, too. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We haven't gotten to forty two yet, though. Yeah, yeah. Right. Anyway, All go right. for it. Those are the four. Those are the football players. Yeah. Which one you want yeah. to go next? Baseball. Yeah, baseball. Three hundred and twenty nine wins. Jay Ham. 10-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion, four-time Cy Young Award winner. He won the Triple Crown, which is ERA, wins, and strikeouts in 1972. Left-hander of the Philadelphia Phillies, number 32, Steve Carlton. Okay. Seven-time All-Star, didn't play very long, four times a World Series champion, three-time Cy Young Award winner. Dodger Sandy Koufax. Yep. Number 32. Short, short career. That hurts him. Yep. Those are yeah. your two best baseball players that wore the number 32. Okay. Now it's, now it's the NBA. Or, or basketball, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, you probably should say basketball. Yeah. 
Um, I'm going to toss out the names real quickly. Shaquille O'Neal, who at times during his career won war number 32. Yep. And Julia serving in the ABA. Oh, yeah. War number 32. I just want to mention that. They they weren't necessarily known in their NBA days as 32, but I want to put them at least as honorable mentions. Sure. All right? Mm Mm-hmm. The next guy didn't have a like an all-world NBA career because he got hurt, but I think what he did in college as a number 32 needs to be discussed. Mm-hmm. He was a two-time NBA champion, an NBA Finals MVP, an NBA Most Valuable Player in 1978. He was a two-time NBA All-Star, but he was injured, 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 bad knees, bad knees, bad knees. But in college, simply put, he was one of the greatest college players that ever lived, wearing number 32. Mm-hmm. He won the national championship in 73. He won the national championship in 72. I think he only lost two games in his entire three-year, three I think it's a three-year college basketball career. Mm-hmm. And if that's not enough, in the championship game, the national championship game of college basketball, in 1973 against Memphis State, Bill Walton, you ready for his stats? I am. 21 out of 22 from the field in the championship game. (laughs) That's video game-ish. 44 points in the championship game. Number 32, great, 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 all-time great college basketball player and would have been a great pro if it weren't for injuries. And now one of the most polarizing broadcasters that we have on TV. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to put it. Bill Walton. Mm-hmm. And, that leaves, okay. and that leaves two. Do you know the two off the top of your head, or do you not know the two? You know one. Do you know the two? Yeah, I, I, I believe I know both of them. Okay. Let's start with 36,928 points, 14,968 rebounds, 5,238 assists. A 14-time All-Star. An 11-time All-NBA First Team. 11 times. A two-time MVP. And probably the greatest power forward ever to, ever to play the game. A guy that we loved counting when he was at the free throw line in the playoffs. During the 1995-96 playoffs. One, two, Three, he held the ball so long. The mailman delivers. Carl Malone, number 32. Very sweaty individual. Yeah, yeah, very sweaty. He, uh, he, he, there's, there's, there's three NBA guys. Patrick Ewing takes the cake. Patrick Ewing, sweatiest human being I've ever, ever seen. Moses Malone, number two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think Carl Malone, number three. All right. And then there is... The Magic Man. Mm-hmm. 19 points per game, 7 rebounds a game, and 11 assists per game. Career averages. Five-time NBA champion, three-time NBA Finals MVP, three-time Most Valuable Player, 12-time All-Star, nine-time All-NBA First Team. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Carl Malone was what I say? 11 times in All-NBA first, yeah. uh, first Team. Magic Johnson. So we've got Magic Johnson and Carl Malone from the NBA. 
We've got Koufax and Carlton from baseball. We've got Simpson. Mm, Jim Brown, obviously. And Marcus Allen. Marcus Allen would be in the conversation. Do you have any guidance for me before we get to that final segment and I have to make my choice? Here's who I think you're going to end up narrowing it down to, the two that I think you're going to you're going to go with, or at least I think you're going to have to choose between. And you could say, no, those aren't my two. I would say Jim Brown and Magic Johnson. Yep. That's correct. So. That's correct. And I've already given it a lot of thought because I know I knew that I was going to be on the hook for this one. And you better get yeah. ready at 33 because I may not oh, say... 33 is a done deal. I may not even say a word during 33, the way you're hanging me out to dry here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's who, I'm, that's who I'm down to. Magic Johnson okay. or Jim Brown. And I don't know which and, way to go. I and, really and don't come know. Come on. All right, I guess you have to say that till the end, but you're going to have to figure that out. Well... If you're leaving it to me, then you're going to have to live with my decision. I'm, I'm fine with that. And you, you heard how much reverence I have for the number 32 of the Cleveland Browns, right? You heard I, that. I understand. Okay. I do. All right. Three guests, three really good guests, and then Jay Ham and I take out our brackets, get on the record, and we have our own little mano and mano pool competition before the start of the NCAA tournament. You know, for months now, I've been telling you that Zeke's Pizza is a terrific place to eat, drink, and watch sports. Last Thursday, I got the chance to visit the Bothell location for the Pac-12 tournament. And this week, it's the brand spanking new Tacoma spot at 1702 Pacific Avenue on the UW Tacoma campus for the Huskies and Utah State. That's a 3.50 p.m. tip from Columbus on Friday I'm planning on being there early. I'm telling you that right now so I can watch some of the other games. They've got plenty of TVs at Zeke's Tacoma. Obviously, all four of the NCAA TV networks. Great specials, by the way, if you join me. $10 off of large pies, $3 off local beers, and $3 local drafts. Come on, office managers, bosses, presidents. Let those employees out early this week, and let's celebrate the University of Washington's return to the greatest spectacle in sports, the NCAA Basketball Tournament at Zeke's Pizza, the Tacoma location. Zeke's, homegrown in the Northwest. It's really one of the great weeks in all of sports. The 2019 NCAA tournament is about to begin. And joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline is the chairman of the NCAA Selection Committee and the guy who's responsible for no work getting done in any office around the country today, tomorrow. Here's uh, Bernard Muir, the Stanford University Athletic Director. Bernard, congratulations to you and your committee. It seems as if, unless my... My head is in the sand. Very little criticism of, of the, the choices that you made over the weekend. It, it sure feels that way, Mitch. Thank you for having me on, and uh, we are very excited to get this tournament underway. We think we've got a heck of a bracket and uh, great competition to come, and we're very excited to, to see what unfolds in right. the next few weeks here. All right, so you've been in some airports already 
Bernard. Um, any gripes? Give me, give me who you hearing from? Who you, who you hearing the complaining from over the course of the last forty? You know what? Not, not too much complaining. I, I mean, occasionally you hear about people signed to different regions that they were, they were expected to go somewhere else. But uh, other than that, it's not been. And of course, we always have a couple teams that wish they were in. We know that every year, it's, it's such a fine line, and and, and unfortunately, we have to keep some teams out. But uh, all in all, I think people uh, understand what we're trying to do with the bracket and trying to balance it and provide the teams a uh, great opportunity to go compete at a high level. So you guys all arrive in New York City on Tuesday. I think our listeners would like to know, what. give us a sense of what's going on besides the meetings. Are you guys spending all day and all evening together? Are you watching games? Do you have like a... I don't know, a banquet room set up with lots of TVs? Are people going to the garden to watch some of the tournaments? What's happening in New York City those five days? So from the moment we arrive on Tuesday, we have dinner uh, together and, and also with our TV partners from uh, Turner CBS. And then on Wednesday, we get started with uh, administrative items and making sure that we run the tournament smoothly in, in the variety of sites that we have. And then we get down to business of uh, selecting and seeding the teams. And, and by Sunday morning, we're into bracketing. Uh, we have to, in, in this case, yesterday, we had about 12 brackets that we were working with because you had a lot of variations in, in how uh, results could occur. And so we had to be prepared for that. And at the, as the day wore on, we got down to about four brackets that we knew we had with two games left. And then we were able to get to the, the final bracket to release it. Uh, at 6 p.m. So uh, all in all, throughout the course of the week, we are watching games together. We're not getting out much. We don't go to other games that are in the area. Uh, really, we're watching in, in our, our meeting room and uh, having our meals there. We'll take breaks occasionally for people to go back and study and do do work. Uh, and then we get back together and we're, we're talking talking basketball and getting this tournament ready. Good food, Bernard? Great, great food. We eat out maybe two times. Uh, I told you the dinner on Tuesday night, and then uh-huh. we eat out one more time together, and then that's it. We, all of our meals are brought in, and, uh-huh. and uh, we're just getting down to business. So NC State and Clemson had the two highest nets of the teams that did not make the field. Uh, there were some teams that did make the field that had lower nets than NC State and Clemson. You've been around the committee for a long time, Bernard. Explain to us the best that you can how the net was used versus how the RPI was used in previous years. You know, the net is used similar to the RPI in that it is a sorting tool solely. Uh, We have many different tools that we can use that we can draw from over the course of the season. Uh, but the net is the primary tool for the NCAA. We're not just going down one through 68 to determine the field of, of the 36 best teams. We're, we're really trying to delve into their resumes and really understand a team. So in the case of an NC State or a Clemson, for example, the thing that, although they had great net numbers, when we when we delve further into their actually what we call their team sheet, yeah. we saw some blemishes that were of concern to us. So in NC State's case, you know, they had nine games had played in Quadrant 1, in the top tier of Quadrant 1. They had nine opportunities, and they did not win a one, not one of them. So 
that was a real concern to say if we're going to be a part of the best 36 teams, we want to be able to see some results that are on the positive end. We know, especially during conference play, that you might take some lumps along the way, but both on the road or maybe even at home on a given night. But mm-hmm. uh, we need to see some consistency in some some form or fashion that you can compete at a high level con- uh, on, on a given night. The voice of Bernard Muir, the athletic director at Stanford and the chairman of the NCAA Selection Committee 2019 tournament. This is a big week in the in the world of sports. So will they come, will the NCAA come to you and say, hey, Bernard, hey, committee, how would you like to see us tinker, fine-tune the net now that we've done it one time around? If you could change any small portion of this mathematical figure, what would it be, Bernard? You know, at this point, I think what we want to do is get through the tournament. We we have a spring meeting, and then we have our, our summer meeting again. Uh, the net is just like you said, a year old, and the last tool that we used was 37 years old. I would expect there to be some tinkering. I'm just not sure how quickly that will come. I think we need to get through the tournament, kind of take a breath, see what where we're at, see what we did, uh, and see what tweaks we may want to make. We might want to go another year and, and just see how this thing unfolds because to have one year of a data point just isn't really fair to the overall process. We, we really feel good about how the net has unfolded throughout the course of the season, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if more tweaks are to come down the road. And that will be for another committee. Uh, I will not be on it because this is my last year. And I'll leave it up to my colleagues to figure that out and uh, just make it better. Bernard, should we do away with the Sunday games, the Sunday tournament finals? Is there a way uh, to, to move those to Saturday? And would that make the process easier for the committee? It, it, it certainly would take the pressure off of somewhat. It would give us another day uh, to just really study and, and uh, make sure that uh, we have the, the order and the way we want it. It does put a little bit of pressure, but we understand also just the buildup uh, that leads to the to the re- revealing of the bracket and and how those are the prime TV spots and a, a prime case to really showcase the best of college basketball. So I think that might be a little unrealistic to to ask teams all of a sudden to to play all their games on Saturday as much as that might help the committee. But I, I do think the buildup that leads into the the re- uh, the reveal the bracket yeah, reveal. Yeah. Is, is really tremendous, and, and so I would hate to take that away as well, too. Okay, a couple of last quick ones, and I'll let you go. We sit here in the Pacific Northwest. Of course, you're a Pac-12 guy, and there's a yep. lot of people that have had this conversation. We've had it on our show for weeks and weeks and weeks. If you took one of those old-fashioned scales out with the cup on one side and the cup on the other, and you put a really, really high-quality win, out-of-conference win on one side, a quadrant one out-of-conference yep. win, and you put a really terrible quadrant four <laughs> loss on the other, which side is going to be heavier and which side is going to be lighter, Bernard? Whew, that's a great question. I, I would say the, 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 the side with the quality, the, the quad one win, okay. I, I think will carry some weight. What I, what I think you have to, to, to uh, look at is – not only uh, looking at this team sheet and what you're talking about, but you got to look at the, who you're comparing to. Um, so there are times when we will have a team that we think, hey, they belong in the term- ter- tournament, and they might have a blemish in quad four. Uh, not too many, but they may, might have one, maybe two, uh, in the case of like an Arizona State comes to mind. But at the same token, what they've done in quad one is they've gone out and played some great basketball and they've won some games. And so that, that I would say who you play, where you play, mm-hmm. and who'd you beat, 
really pl- plays a, a big factor. And then we we hope that there's not too many blemishes right. in quads three and four, uh, so we can really uh, celebrate the the wins uh, as opposed to looking at the the losses. The reason I ask you this is obviously here in Seattle, it was a very unusual team sheet for a long, long time. It was a very unusual resume. Here you had a Washington team that didn't beat anybody out of conference of of real quality, and yet up until that California game, that loss to California late in the season, it was a Washington team that hadn't lost to anybody but really solid NCAA tournament teams. So we didn't really know how the committee would view that that situation with no quality wins but yet no real bad losses. Yeah, I mean I think in this case the the Pac-12 in general uh it was a down year for us all, all across the board and and so it was hard to rack up uh Q1 wins uh for any program and uh that that was to the detriment. I think the other thing why I I just say that we just don't stick to the the team sheet or the metrics is we have to watch teams play and I have to observe the action and I think if you watched Washington over the course of the season you knew that was a talented team. Uh, but they just didn't have great opportunities to go out and, and win Q1 games. And so you had to de- uh, delve a little deeper and, and know that this team is, is certainly worthy of being a, among the 36. Do they get any credit for taking Gonzaga a one seed right down to the last few seconds on Gonzaga's home floor, or do you have to either win that game or we don't even consider that game. How does how does that work? I think we consider the final result, and and certainly if you're watching that game, which uh, which, which I did, and I know many of my other uh, fellow committee members did, you knew, hey, they can compete at a high level uh, on a given night. They can do so. I, I think in, uh, I'm thinking about uh, other teams that maybe were left out. They they could make the same claim that hey, we had a lot of close games. I think at Clemson, right. for example. But at the end of the day, you have to have some wins. Uh, that we we can hold hold our hat on saying this team belongs, and I think Washington, well, based on the opportunities that they had, they got enough wins to say, hey, we, we belong in the field. Do you feel like they would have made the tournament regardless of the outcome of the Pac-12? Had they made had Washington made your field after a 15 and three conference schedule, Bernard? After a 15, well, I, I think. Or did, they they, were, or did they still have work to do in the Pac-12 tournament? Do you think? I think you know we we look at the full. Well, you hear the committee speak a full body of work. Uh, I, I think by the time we we got to uh, Saturday night before Selection Sunday, Washington, we felt belonged in the field and and we were ready to move on. But you know, it certainly helped that they won the conference regular season. Uh, that took note of that. They got racked up a lot of wins. Uh, and, you know, when, when given the opportunity to go compete at a high level, they, they were right there. Last question. Had they beaten Oregon in the conference championship game, would they have avoided the 8-9 seeded game in the first round? Could they have moved up a line to the 7, or were they going to be somewhere in that 8-9 region regardless of the outcome I, of that game? I think they were going to be in that region. You know, yeah, a lot of times people make uh, a, a huge deal of the last – the conference uh, championship play and it is a data point sometimes it does help teams but coming into that we're looking at when i say the full body work that includes the conference tournament and so we can't put greater greater emphasis on the conference tournament than we do the the regular season all games matter and so to to move dramatically up the seed line just because of how you played in in three games over a course of a a week uh it, it just that that just 
doesn't happen that often. Uh, sometimes teams catch momentum and they're playing real well. They were hopefully that momentum is a buildup from what happened in the regular season, and so and then we make adjustments. Uh, but in this case, I, I think where the committee viewed Washington was right in that that middle tier there, and and uh, you know now they have a chance to go prove themselves. Uh, at a high level with great competition. Now the fun part for you, Bernard. I know that you'll have the best seat in the house wherever you travel here for the next <laughs> two or three weeks. If you need a travel, no if you need a travel partner, just call me. You now have my number. You know how to reach me. Uh, have a I great, have a great, great time. And again, congratulations to you and your committee. Every year, it seems like there's a lot of gripe and a lot of bitch and a lot of moaning. I didn't hear it. I don't feel it this year nearly as much. So that's a real tribute to you and your and your committee. Thanks a lot for we'll being take with that us. That is a win. Thank you, Mitch. Appreciate you having me on. The voice of Bernard Muir, the athletic director of Stanford University and the chairman of the NCAA tournament selection committee. And so with the tournament up and running, it's March Madness. So is our first ever unfiltered madness competition presented by Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest, managing over $2 billion in assets. Evergreen is a fee-only advisor with no hidden fees or commissions. Remember, they're a fiduciary to their clients. Not all financial advisors can say that. And that means they have a legal requirement to make financial decisions that put their clients' interests first. We are talking about the fastest growing wealth manager in 2018, according to the Puget Sound Business Journal, with offices in Bellevue, Portland, Napa, San Francisco, three decades of experience. By the way, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about what they do at Evergreen Golf Call, go to their website. It's evergreengolfcall.com, and golf call is G-A-V-E-K-A-L. Dot com And also sign up for their newsletter. Over 10,000 readers in 2018, the Financial Times named them one of the top advisors in America. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline is the Mountain West Coach of the Year, and he just happens to be the uh, the villain, the evil villain coach in these parts in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. Coach Craig Smith is with what? us, the Mountain West Coach of the Year, Utah State Aggies. What a great season, and the opponent for the University of Washington. Congratulations on all the success, Coach. Hey, Mitch. I really appreciate that, and thanks for having me on, and I got to be honest, my, my wife calls me a lot worse names than that, so um, we'll, we'll go with the villain part. <laughs> Tell us about this terrific first season that you had at Utah State. It was a dream season, wasn't it? It truly has been. It's really been a, ma a magical ride. I know a lot of superlatives get used at this time of year uh, because there's 68 teams that are incredibly happy right now, and, you know, and a lot of those teams – you know, haven't been here before or, you know, don't always experience it. And certainly for us coming in here, I got hired about, you know, just short of a year, about two weeks short of a year ago now. And, and in the, in the, in our press conference, that was what we said is we got to, you know, Utah state's got a rich tradition of basketball going back to the whack and the previous conferences they've been in. And quite frankly, that's what really drew me to this position is when I was an assistant coach at Colorado state, um, Utah State wasn't in the Mountain West at the time, but we had common opponents, UNLV, BYU, et cetera. And I would see these 
those teams coming and playing Utah State, and I'm like, wow, these guys got it going on. You know, you'd see the Spectrum, which is our home arena. It was like a big party yeah. in that arena. And so it, from that point on, it really stuck in my head like, wow, that looks like it would be a great job. Like they truly care about basketball and athletics. And, of course, the state of Utah has always been known as a, uh, have, to have knowledgeable fans and very good basketball. So, um, you know, it's been exciting. We said in the press conference, let's get Utah State where it belongs, and that's on the top of the Mountain West Conference. And, and obviously for us to, to share the regular season title with a really good Nevada team and then validate that uh, regular season title by winning the, the conference tournament championship against the defending conference tournament champion, San Diego State, um, we really left no doubt, and it's quite frankly just been such a magical ride. I got to be honest with you, Coach. I was hoping for the rubber match with Nevada and you guys. The first time around wasn't so good. The second time around led to pandemonium and everybody coming out onto the floor. That was very exciting for you. It's too bad that the, the two teams couldn't get together one more time in the conference tournament. Yeah, it would have been exciting, no doubt. And, and you know, we – you know, it was going to be a 50-50, and San Diego State really matched up with Nevada well. Certainly Nevada was hurt because Jordan Caroline did not play, and, and he's a very good player. Uh, I think he had, uh, I don't know, an Achilles strain or something. But, you know, all we could do is control our side of the bracket. You know, we were able to – we were the last team in our league to have our bye. Mm -hmm. So the way the Mountain West works, we don't have travel partners like the Pac-12 does. So it's, it's on the road Wednesday – home on Saturday or vice versa, right, and mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So we had 12 straight games without a bye, which was the longest in the Mountain West. And it was kind of fitting, though, in some respects because San Diego State, to their credit, uh, was the defending champion. They have the most conference championships in the history of the Mountain West. And in our six years in the Mountain West, we had never beaten San Diego State until we beat them at home about three weeks ago. So – there were a few demons, I think, maybe we were fighting a little bit in that game. But fortunately for us, we were able to find a way to win. The voice of Craig Smith on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, the first-year coach, coach of the year, the Mountain West Utah State Aggies against Washington on Friday in Columbus. Coach, you ever seen anything like Matisse Theibel in that zone that you're going to see on Friday night in the University of Washington? What kind of zones do you play in the Mountain West Conference against? First of all, Seibel, he, he that guy, he is a game changer. It's very He's a special talent. I mean, obviously, he's very, very talented, incredibly athletic, super quick twitch. And, and so when you combine all of that with his instincts, and instincts are a thing that's very difficult to teach, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's just kind of one of those things. And he's just so instinctive and quick to the ball with amazing hands. And... Um, he just, I mean, he, what he averages over three steals a game and over two block shots a game for a guard, like that's unheard of. And so I, I heard somebody say, I don't know if it was on a telecast or something I read. And I think it really kind of holds true. Like somebody said, like, he's almost like Deion Sanders was <laughs> back when he played football, where he just kind of eliminates one side of the floor. Right. And, and to his credit, he kind of does that. He's just so active and, He's just all over the place. So he's such a unique player and a, and a real special player. And, you know, their zone, obviously, Coach Hopkins, I don't know Coach personally, um, um, but 
uh, one of my best friends is one of his best friends. So I know he's always said tremendous things about coach and obviously watching the tape, they're very well coached. Yeah. They're coaching staff and him do a great job uh, to be the regular season champs, you know, this year. And I believe they won it last year speaks volumes as to who they are and what they've done. But, you know, their zone is as good as anybody. The windows in their zone, meaning like the gaps in their defense, yeah. there's not many of them, and they're a lot smaller gaps than the zones that we've seen, you know. And so we have seen a decent amount of zone this year, and so it's not totally unfamiliar, you know, to us. Uh, you know, some leagues are, you just never see zone. We do see some zone throughout the Mountain West and certainly in our non-conference play. So we'll be prepared. Obviously, we're going to have to make some adjustments because they do it better than anybody um, does, and we'll get some good reps here um, before we play on Friday. Hey, before you uh, you run off, I want to hear a little bit about your team. You talk about how Thibel tends to take away one side of the floor. Sam Merrill is an unbelievable player. I, I've, I've seen him play. I've read all the articles. Smartest player, guttiest player, 91% from the line, 38% from three. He scores. He does it all. He leads your team. Uh, does he have a favorite side of the floor? Can you do us a favor and make sure that Sam is on Thibel's uh, wing at all times? Can we do that or not? Is that not so much? Well, well, his favorite side of the floor on Friday will be the opposite side of the floor. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, obviously that's tongue-in-cheek. But Sam, there's just not enough superlatives. I'm so incredibly fortunate to coach this team um, and this group of guys. It's been it, – it's just – for as young as we are, the maturity level and just their want and buy-in has been incredible. But Sam, Sam going into the year certainly uh, was the most uh, revered, right? He was a third-team all-league guy yeah. last year as a sophomore, and and but he's taken his game to a whole different level. And you know, he's one of the best shooters you'll ever come around. And and like in all these preseason things, you know, like Jeff Goodman, he ranked him number twenty-seven as a shooter and. But as good of a shooter as he is, he's an even better passer and playmaker. And he won't just wow you with like how athletic he is, or you know that. But his IQ and feel for the game is impeccable. And but even more than all that, Mitch is he averages over twenty a game. He can score it like crazy, but he's like the most unselfish, quote unquote, star I've ever been around. And so we're top 10 in the country in assists per game. And a lot of that's because of Sam. Certainly we have a lot of guys that can pass, but because of his unselfishness and not sitting there thinking, I got to get mine, you know, that's contagious. Good passing is contagious. And so, uh, and he's just this gritty um, competitor. And all Sam, all everybody told me when I got hired is all Sam cares about is winning. That's mm -hmm. all he cares about. Mm -hmm. Just win. Let's find a way to win. Let's win. And so all the other stuff is secondary. And quite frankly, that's become the mantra of our team. Let's just find ways to win. And, and I, you know, I've been coaching for 23 years. I'm very, very good team, some not so good teams. And this team is just such a unique team because I'm not sure I've ever been around a group of guys so selfless. And I think a lot of that starts when your best player plays like that and has that attitude you, you talk about unique there's nothing quite like having a rim protector is there coach you've got that <laughs> 6 11 freshman with a wingspan of like a nine footer he's a freshman uh he's the defensive player of the year in your conference love having that guy back there as your as your last line of defense huh 
Wow, he, he's been incredible. I've coached in the Big Ten for two years, and of course, I've been an assistant in the Mount West for five years, and he's just, I mean, he's just an eraser, and, and you know, we're not the, you know, he, he just can cover up so many mistakes, like all rim protectors do, but he's got a, he's got an innate ability. His timing is impeccable. Obviously, he's long. I mean, he's legitimately 7'5 wingspan. He's a tough kid, and, um, and he's so instinctive around the rim, you know, he's an instinctive player period, I guess. But, um, but he certainly can erase a lot of shots, covers up some mistakes. Um, and he really anchors our defense and he's a, and you'll see it when you watch the game. He, he's just such a thrill to coach. He, he's a guy that just has an attitude that craves improvement. He wants to be great. He wants to be special. He wants to be coached. And some guys say they want to be coached, but, then as soon as you get a little critical or tell, <laughs> then they don't want to be coached, right? Like, Oh no, 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 I'm good. What are you talking about? You know? Uh, and he is, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I got you. And he's a quick learner. So when you say something to him, it's amazing. Like it resonates and you don't have to tell him twice. And so you love that about him. And he's just such a special person. So appreciative to be here. So appreciative of everything. And, um, uh, after the, you know, after we clinched the, after we punched our ticket beating San Diego State, he gave me two of the biggest bear hugs. I'm still gasping for my breath. I think I got a, I think my my second rib on the left side, I think might be cracked. But um, but he's a special special talent to say the least. Last question: uh, Your guys ready for the bright lights? You always have to ask that question for teams and, and players that don't have a lot of experience in the NCAA tournament, you won on a neutral floor against St. Mary's, played a great game, one by 17. You've faced uh, Arizona State. You've, you've gone to BYU, I think, Houston, the two games with Nevada, the, the San Diego State games, and, of course, the championship game in your conference. How ready do you think your guys are for one shining moment and all that goes along with the NCAA tournament, Coach? Well, Mitch, I'm impressed. You, you're doing your research. I like that. And that's a great question. And, you know, because early on, you know, we started out like we, I, I, you know, we started out our season at Montana State and it's either at Montana State. Like, well, we have all these young dudes, right? Like we, uh, we nobody, you kind of know what to expect. You hope you know what you expect, but you don't know what to expect. Like it's all new coach, new, everything's new, right? Um, and then we beat St. Mary's in Vegas, all the lights shining, all that. And we went, and not only did we win the way we won, it was a resounding yeah. 17 point win. Yeah. And, and then I think the guys are like, Oh, cause I think you go through stages. You think you're good enough. You're hoping you're good enough. You know, um, we played at Arizona state, played them to the wire. Um, then we went to BYU, a true road game, obviously. And I thought that we were overwhelmed, quite frankly, I think we were hoping we could win. And then Houston, we're up 10 at halftime and probably should have been up 15. And then they make their major run, which they're going to do. I mean, those guys last three games all year. And we just, you know, with all that crowd and the whole thing, we just didn't quite have enough to get over the top. And then we play at Nevada, and they make that run, and you can't hear yourself think. And, but then, you know, we beat New Mexico in a last-second shot, crazy environment. And then we won a couple other times. And then all of a sudden, you start building that confidence. Right. And now they know how – now our guys know how to win – and it's been really a uh, – this team is the best group that I've coached in terms of, like, being able to compartmentalize 
and and having the ability to not sit there and beat their chest forever. Like we have high expectations. Our goals are far from being done, and and our guys have risen to the occasion all year long. It's been, when you look at winning, we started out Mount West play one and two, and we've been able to win seventeen of our last eighteen. So certainly we have good momentum. Um, we have good leadership, and I think we'll be ready to go against a very good Washington team. Well, you sound like a terrific guy and a terrific coach and a terrific mentor, and I wish you all the best in the world. Now, just understand that I've got a family here in the Pacific Northwest. I've got kids who go to school here, so I can't wish you the best of luck. I'd like for them to be treated well on the playground at, uh, at school, but uh, I- I'll wish you, I wish you all the very best moving forward. Uh, uh, safe travels to Columbus and enjoy the experience. What a terrific, terrific story Utah State is and you are in your first year with the program. Congratulations, Coach. Hey, thank you so much, Mitch. Just pull. I know you got to pull for the Huskies on, on Friday, but every other night, always pull. The Aggies can be your adopted second team. How about that? Thank you, Coach. Nice speaking with you. Hey, thanks for having me on. There he is, Craig Smith, the coach of the opponent, Utah State. It's the Aggies and the Huskies at just after 3.45 p.m. Pacific time on Friday night, first round of the NCAA tournament. Excellence. I know everybody talks about it. How many people actually practice what they preach? I know Daniels Broiler does. In fact, it's one of the very things that I love most about Daniels Broiler. I love the stakes. Daniel's broiler. I love the 1,800-degree broiler that the steaks are seared in. But what I love even more, the fact that every time I order a USDA prime steak at Daniel's, a wait person comes up to me and asks with a little flashlight, have we prepared your steak to your satisfaction? This happens every time to every person who orders any of the Daniel's world-class steaks. We had an event there the other night that was incredible. We had 70 people, 70 listeners, and they were all just blown away by Daniel's Broiler's excellence. Locally owned by the Schwartz family, located at South Lake Union, Leshy Marina, Bellevue Place, and now the new downtown Hyatt Regency at 8th and Howell. Excellence, Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. I know that we've got the NCAA tournament this week and the next couple of weeks, one of the biggest spectacle in sports, but I got to get my buddy in here, Steve Phillips, the former GM of the New York Mets, serious XM baseball expert. When I hear 430 million smackers, Steve, I automatically think if it's baseball, I got to hear what Steve Phillips has to say. When we go back years ago on our radio show and these two guys, Harper and Trout, came up together you were very, very consistent. Harper's a really, really, really good player. Trout's going to be one of the greats we've ever seen. And so far, so good. $430 million. What do you think? I think it's a bargain, honestly. I, quite honestly, I would have paid him more. Uh, and I think he left some money on the table. I think he had every right to try to shoot for $40 million a year. Uh, he didn't. You know, he had $66.5 million remaining in the last two years of the contract that he was playing under. Uh, and so, you know, he ends up getting about $360 million for 10 years on top of that as well to get him to the four twenty six five four hundred thirty million dollars And so, you know, we're talking about a mega deal for – and here's the thing. Uh, it's moved the bar pretty significantly. It could have gone further. 
but it recognizes that he has the biggest contract in all the professional sports. He is the best player in baseball today. He has the highest annual average value of a contract, which he deserves as well. It's great for the Angels to, to be able to keep their star player I'm a big fan. Growing up in Detroit, Al Kaline was kind of my guy. He played his entire career there. I look at Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell and those guys playing their career uh, in, in Detroit. And so, like, I think stars playing in one city for their entire career is great for a community. So I think it's good for baseball. It's good for him uh, and uh, certainly good for uh, the L.A. Angels, no doubt. Why do you think he left money on the table? And if he were Scott Boris's client, would he have ever signed this deal? Steve. No, he would. I'll answer that last one first. Absolutely not. In fact, he wouldn't have signed uh, until the spring training of you know two <laughs> plus years from now. We know that. Uh, but you know, I think he looked at it and said, "All right, well, you know, he waited. Uh, Trout did for Machado and Harper to sign to get a sense as to where those deals were. The Arenado contract extension came in, and that had a thirty-two million dollar per year annual average value." Uh, and so he knew what the targets were, as agent did, where to go beyond. Uh, and, you know, he effectively lapped Bryce Harper with this contract, right? I mean, 13 years, $330 million for Harper, 12 years, $430 million for Trout. Uh, and, and here's the thing. They are that far apart as players, and, and they're both good. I mean, listen, Harper got paid, I think, where he, where he should get paid. Uh, less than Machado, less than Arenado, because he's less of a player than those guys. Trout is the best. He has deserved every right to be beyond Nolan Arenado's $32 million a year, beyond Zach Greinke's $34 million, although it's a much shorter-term deal. Uh, and uh, it's his rightful place. He, he's not about money. That's the other thing that I love about him is he doesn't, he's not in it for about the, to break. I mean, he, he got paid. It's the most anybody's ever gotten. That's good enough, right? It doesn't have to be you know, three times this, two times that. Uh, it respects what he is as a player, and now he's going to go out and pay it back to the team. And I would imagine he makes a lot of money in endorsement dollars off the field, right? We see him on Subway commercials and everywhere else. Well, here's the thing. Like, he could make a heck of a lot more. Uh, Bryce Harper makes more in commercials than does Mike Trout, but uh. that's only because Mike Trout uses his time for different things. He, he's not all that you – know, if he's going to spend some time away from the ballpark doing something – he tends to try to do something to give back, and he doesn't always get paid for it. So he's going to children's hospitals. He's working in, in children's programs and doing those sorts of things. He's a really, really good guy. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it's not about him. He's just a baseball player, all baseball all the time, and actually, you know, doesn't care about, you know, being the best at this or that. Just wants to go out and be the best Mike Trout he can be, and he'll let everybody else make the judgments about uh, where he ends up in history. The voice of Steve Phillips, Sirius XM, terrific baseball voice and former GM of the New York Mets. You know, you, you mentioned, you say he's just a really nice guy. It's funny because on my notes to talk about with you today, I have that very point. When you think about the stars of the other sports, Let's use Tom Brady as an example, LeBron James in the NBA. Not that those guys aren't good guys and good human beings, but there's something different. Can't put my finger on it. There's something different about Mike Trout. He seems kind of less affected, if that's the best way to put it, than those other guys, Steve. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you know Mike Trout would never say, I'm taking my talents to Anaheim. Uh, you know, He's not going to marry the supermodel. Uh, you know, He married his high school sweetheart. Uh, and, you know, there's a part of him that I think a lot of people in Philadelphia are disappointed. They thought, boy, you know what, he's going to come back. He loves Philly. He comes to the Eagles games all the time. And, yeah. and there's a real level of disappointment uh, there. And they're all kind of saying, well, we got a better deal for what we gave Bryce Harper. 
Uh, and that's what the team that doesn't get Mike Trout says, is that, well, we're good enough. We got, well, at least we got a guy. Uh, but there's a part of him that sort of started his own life in Los Angeles and Anaheim. And, and you know, going back home is not always the easiest thing to do. Uh, he's already going to be the guy that's going to have to buy dinner from whoever he sits at the table with. I guess maybe Bill Gates would buy Mike <laughs> Trout dinner. But, you know, I mean, maybe he would. Uh, and, and so, you know, everybody else he's going to pay. And so if you go back home to play, you're buying everybody dinner. Right. You're leaving everybody <laughs> tickets. And it can get a bit overwhelming. So, uh, you know, he's got his space. Uh, and now the key is going to be for the Angels to try to find a way to win, right? They've, how about from 2002 through 2009, they made the playoffs six times. Since Mike Trout got to the big league in 2011, they made the playoffs once. Mm. And they got swept by the Royals, and he mm. was 1 for 12. He's just not had the opportunity. I hope they're able to spend around him. They should be able to. They could even go out and add Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimball right now and, and stay under the luxury tax. But it doesn't seem like that's part of the plan, at least not for this year. Steve, my favorite Mike Trout factoid, and there are a million that you can choose from, but my favorite one is he's played seven seasons since his true rookie year where he won rookie of the year, and he has finished first or second in the MVP balloting in six of the seven years, which is amazing. But then there's this. The one year that he didn't finish in the top two, he finished fourth, and that was 2017, only because he played 114 games and he was hurt. And in fact, his numbers in those 114 games in his worst year was actually better than his stats, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, than in some of the MVP years. So that's the kind of impact he's had in the first seven years. Yeah, here's here's the thing for me. What jumps out at me is you know that that new stat wins above replacement, right? Right. right, it, right. it tells you where you are. So historically, he's ranked 145th right now. His wins above replacement right now are 64.3. Now, he's played, as you mentioned, they they say eight seasons. It was part of a season and then seven full seasons. Uh, And in seven full seasons, he has a war of 64.3. To put that in perspective, Willie McCovey, Hall of Famer, played 22 years in the major leagues, had a 64.5 war. He's two-tenths of a point ahead of Mike Trout, and Trout's done it in seven full seasons. Wow. Dave Winfield, 22 years in the, in the major leagues, in the Hall of Fame, 64.2. His, his war is less than Mike Trout. After seven seasons, what this guy is doing is so historical. And here's the guy got $430 million. As you mentioned, he's been in the top two in MVP in, in six of the seven years. The other year, he's fourth. Uh, and he's underrated. People don't really realize how great he is. He is absolutely okay. one of the most phenomenal players to ever play the well, game. And when his career is over, he's going to be among the top ten in war in the history of baseball. You just beat me to my last question, my last point, before I ask you who your final four are in the NCAA tournament. I was surprised when I was researching him before you and I started the chat to see, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that he has not won a Gold Glove Award in center field. And so I know he's a good defensive player. In fact, he was a finalist, I think, for the award this past season. Can he go down, Steve, as the greatest ever or one of the two or three greatest ever in the history of Major League Baseball without uh, you know, the, the assortment of defensive awards that other guys have, like Willie Mays and uh, you know, Ozzie Smith and all the great defensive players? Yeah, I think he can because, you know, uh, Ozzie Smith was right, one of the greatest defensive shortstops ever, but he wasn't one of the greatest shortstops ever because he didn't hit enough. 
Uh, and, you know, you start to look at Mike Trout. You know, the, the, the defensive numbers are slightly above average. The offensive numbers are among the best ever in the history of the game. So, uh, you know, there will always be a defensive specialist who will probably out-defend him. But I don't bet against Mike Trout. You know, he has the, – the amazing part of him, he's, he's winning all these awards, and every year he comes back the next year and says, you know what, I want to do this. I want to cut down on my strikeouts. And so he did. He went from 137 to 90. He went from 130, 158 – actually, he went from 184 to 158 to 137 to 90 strikeouts. He said, I need to walk more. So he's gone from 83 to 92 to 116 to 122. Then he said, you know what, I stole bases early. Remember, his first full season, he stole 49 bases. Then the stolen bases, he said, I've got to start stealing bases again. So now he's back up to 30 stolen bases, 24 stolen bases. He can do anything, and he keeps trying to get better. Right? That's always the challenge for a great player. I always say to him, and I ask this question a lot when I go around spring training camps, what do you do, like Jacob DeGrom, what do you do to get better this year? Like, how, how can you be better? Like, what, how do you go about it? And some guys get crazy. They think, you know, Noah Syndergaard was like, I need to throw harder after he was, had the highest average fastball at 99. And what he did, he bulked up and got hurt. And so it's always a challenge, but Trout finds a component of the game to always look to improve. And so I'm not going to put it past him that he's not going to someday win a gold glove. All right, Steve Phillips, do you know what this sound is? You know what that uh, is? Uh, uh, what is that? That is the sound of my bracket. My yeah. NCAA tournament bracket. And, you know, for years, Steve Phillips and I have been talking baseball on the radio show and now on the podcast, but many know that Steve is a huge sports fan, a huge sports fan who branches out way beyond baseball. Just because you were a GM in baseball doesn't mean you wouldn't have been a better GM in the NBA or in the NFL, for, for all I know. So, uh, before I send this in to all the competitions, all the bracket pools out there, I need yeah. your help. Tell me, yep. tell me what I need to know about the NCAA tournament bracket this year in the world of Steve Phillips. Okay, well, listen, do not discount the University of Michigan. I am a Wolverine, <laughs> uh, and they have made their runs in the past, and I think they're going to make their runs again, but they're going to they're be challenged by Buffalo. Uh, and be careful about Buffalo. They're going to beat them uh, to get to the Elite Eight. I have them going, actually beating Gonzaga. Uh, to get to the Final Four. Uh, but that's where it will stop for the Wolverines because Duke, I went and watched Duke against North Carolina State this year, and Zion, the game before he got hurt against North Carolina, and Zion Williamson put up 32 and he was in foul trouble. He is unguardable in college basketball. From anything I've seen, he's unguardable. So that's something to watch. Uh, I think Virginia's a really good, solid, well-coached team. But I, you know, and I, the people aren't going to like this. But I think when it comes down to it, you're looking at Duke and North Carolina, you know, for the fourth time this year uh, going against each other. And, and uh, it's been a tough run for Duke against them, but it's going to be really hard for North Carolina to beat Duke a fourth time. I've got Duke winning it all. Okay, let me ask you a trivia question. If I asked you who's the worst three-point shooting team to ever win an NCAA tournament, would you have any idea the answer to that question? Uh, I would not. I would say it's, you know, it's probably not like Loyola, Miramont. It's not Gonzaga. Uh, it's not, although they haven't won, I guess. Yes, you got to win the yeah, title. win the title. The win the yeah, title. Who is the worst? Who okay, the worst so, the, so the worst shooting team from three-point land, especially in recent history when they had the, the line where it is now, is the right. 2011 UConn Huskies who came out of nowhere to win that NCAA tournament. Right. right. And they shot 32.9% over the course of the season from three and then went on to win the national championship. Now, I know that we've never seen Zion Williamson, but I'll just submit this for your thinking, Cap. 
to take with you in the in the next few days. And that is that the Duke Blue Devils, if the Blue Devils win the championship like you say they will and like many people say they will, they shot 30% from three this year. They would be the worst three-point shooting team in the history of college basketball to win the NCAA tournament at the three that we know it as of today. And so my question is, over six games, especially later in the tournament, when they start playing better teams, will they go cold from three, and will that be their undoing in the NCAA tournament? Here's the thing. The reason I like them is because there will be a game that they can, they can get cold from three, but they have the ability to then go to the basket. They have the ability to then drive to the basket, and Zion is unstoppable. He can post <laughs> up. They can dump it inside. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, by the way, uh, when they miss, the offensive rebounding potential for their big guys is a factor as well. So, you know, everybody's going to go cold at some point, and you better have another way to score. That's why I like Duke, because they will have that other way to score. It's great to hear your voice again. Enjoy the NCAA tournament. We're getting uh, revved up for the start of the Major League Baseball season, which means you'll be getting more calls from Mitch. Thanks so very much. Good to hear you again. You got it. Thanks, Mitch. Steve Phillips, one of the baseball voices of Sirius XM and the former general manager of the New York Mets, says that Mike Trout is underpaid. He left money on the table when he agreed to a $430 million contract extension over 12 years. Mater and Knowles are friends of Zeke's, and that makes them friends of Mitch Unfiltered. Who's Mater and Knowles? The premier real estate agents in the Northeast Seattle area specializing in neighborhoods that surround Husky Stadium. If you live in Northeast Seattle, look for their annual report that is out now to find your next home or to get an idea of what your home is worth. Zeke's is a proud sponsor of the report, so you'll also find great deals for your next pizza delivery or when you visit the Northeast Seattle Zeke's at 2108 Northeast 65th Street in Ravenna. Unfiltered. Is that that is my bracket son. that is my bracket all right where should we begin i guess the, the 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 best place to begin is the top left corner in the east region i was gonna say isn't that how you always start top yeah, left i think top left top yep. left yep. all right i'm assuming uh let's talk sweet 16 to that region okay okay let's talk sweet 16 tell me what you have and your thoughts getting into the Sweet 16 in the East region? Uh, that'd be uh, the Duke Blue Devils. Of course. Virginia Tech. Okay. LSU. Yep. Michigan State. Chalk, 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 which I don't mind. You know that I don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have the exact same Sweet 16. Do you have any upsets in that region in the first round or anybody – that's uh, of a higher-natured seed doing anything in the first, second rounds? Well, uh, a, a 7-10 is not really uh, you know, the Louisville-Minnesota game. I'm going with Minnesota. Okay. Why? Uh, you, you saw Minnesota play. You like Minnesota. Yeah, played play Minnesota up close and personal. They, you know, we were better than them, to be honest with you. Um, I think Louisville's 
on a bit of a downturn to close the year. So I'm not, I think it's more of a, you know, Minnesota, I just have a better, you know, it's a coin flip to me in that game. And I have a better feeling about Minnesota. It's in, it's in Des Moines. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like Minnesota is going to win that game. Okay. Uh, I wanted to take Yale over LSU with all the turmoil around the LSU program, but I couldn't pull the trigger. Yeah, me too. I wanted to take Belmont over Maryland, and I did pull the trigger. Yeah, me too. So there's my upset. I got, I've got Belmont and LSU in the second round. It seems like you and I may have the exact. You have Central Florida winning the the but, VCU but game. I, yes, I do. I have Central okay. Florida, but I also have. I don't think you have Minnesota. You have Louisville. No, that's the only difference oh. that we have. It's the only yeah, that's time. it. Yeah. All right, so we both have Duke and Virginia Tech in one. In one uh, Sweet 16 game in Michigan yeah. State and LSU in the other. Correct. Uh, I'm going to say that we both have Duke versus Michigan State, one versus two in that, in that regional final. We do. All right. And I know for a fact that you've got Duke because I think you have Duke winning the whole darn thing. I, I do. Okay. That's where I'm going to say I'm going to take a little bit of a flyer. And I'm going to say Izzo does the right thing defensively, forces Duke to make shots. And Izzo goes to the Final Four with an upset over Duke. I'm taking Michigan State, the two seed, out of that region. Okay. All right. Let's go down to the bottom left. You're up. Okay. Uh, bottom left. Uh, we've got a, a certain number one seed that I'm, I'm not real pleased about. Mm-hmm. The Weasel. Looking at the first round, I have lots and lots and lots of chalk. I thought long and hard about Florida beating Nevada. Yep. But I just decided the talent on Nevada, those three guys in particular, the brothers, um, I just couldn't pull the trigger on Florida over Nevada. And you know that I'm not a proponent of going out and just being wild with, with upset picks. I, I explained this at Daniels the other night. I think that that's a, that's a recipe. You, you remember the ones that you hit, right? Yep. But, but every, for every one you hit, you miss about three or four of them. And you're giving up points to the field. Well, I'm glad I was there at Daniels because I picked Florida. You've got Florida. I've got Nevada. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I'm chalk all the way. I've got Gonzaga versus Florida State. And yep, I've got Texas Tech versus Michigan in the Sweet me 16. Too. Okay. Me too. This yep. is where I think you and I are going to differ. Okay. I am going to take Leonard Hamilton and the really, really long, tall, and athletic Florida State Seminoles who have played in the last three, four weeks probably as good a basketball as any two or three teams in the country. Mm -hmm. I'm taking Florida State in the upset in the Sweet 16 over Gonzaga. You and I are in lockstep on that. Ooh, really? Are you cheating off? Are you looking at my paper? I have a feeling we're going to differ on the next one, though. I think the next one, if it ever happens, you know, the chances of this next game happening, the Texas Tech-Michigan game are still very – I mean, it, it, something gets screwy, and Texas Tech could lose in the first round of Northern Kentucky. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that that would be a phenomenal matchup of different styles, Texas Tech mm-hmm. and Michigan. I've seen mm-hmm. both teams play several times. I think – no offense – to Virginia, who plays great defense year after year after year and have a great defensive team this year. I think that the Texas Tech defense is the best defense in the country. 
And then you got John Beeline and the way he runs an offense and how he gets his guys shots and three-pointers. And it's just a it's like poetry in motion watching the Michigan offense against a, just a tough, stout Texas Tech defense. I'm taking Texas Tech. Uh, this, is, this is probably the team that can ruin my bracket and ruin my chances at all these pools. I'm sticking my neck out with Texas Tech. And I've thought that for the last several weeks. I'm sticking to my guns. I'm not – I'm worried about it, but I'm taking Texas Tech to the to the final game against Florida State. Okay. Well, like I said, this is where you and I differ. I'm, I'm on Michigan there. Okay. I'm on, I'm on Michigan there for the reason that you just said. I think is, is – I think Michigan's going to have, after losing a couple of games to Michigan State late in the season, they're going to have – a whole lot to play for and uh, with an opportunity to get to the Final Four. And uh, I'm going Michigan versus Florida State. But you got Michigan but, beating Florida State to go to the Final Four. Correct. Okay. And I've got Texas Tech beating Florida State. Okay. So to Texas go to the Tech Final one. Four. Which, okay, so that's, that's, that's a – we've had very few uh, – very few picks that have differed up right. until this bracket and right really basically that bottom that bottom corner right right mm-hmm. what i think is interesting before we go to the next region you've got michigan out of there i've got texas tech is the second round games for both of those teams texas tech's going to play a really good buffalo team trust me yeah. We all saw Buffalo last year in the tournament. I watched Buffalo come into the Dome this year in a non-conference game and hand it, hand it to the Orange, the hometown team, in the non-conference game. They've won like 31 games already, 32 games already. So that's yeah. going to be a tough game for Texas Tech. And we've talked about Nevada, right, and the athletes that they've got. I would imagine that if Nevada comes to play and actually shows up, that will be a tough game for Michigan. So those second-round games – are not going to be chopped liver for either of those two teams. Right, but for you and I to differ because I think Florida's going to beat Nevada. But, yeah, oh, that's right. I understand that's right. what you're saying. Oh, that's right. Yep. Okay, so Florida would have a shot. All right, where do we go next? We go to the uh, top? Do we top, go to the top? Top, top right. All top right. right, yeah. Okay, you go first. UVA and Oregon. In one sweet 16. you got Oregon winning two games. You really think that Dana Altman's going to be able to pull this rabbit out of his ass? Yeah. They're going to beat Wisconsin. And... <laughs> going to go to the Sweet 16. I mean, they just are. They're going to beat UC Irvine in the second round, or they're going to beat Kansas State in the second round? Irvine. So you got a 12-13 matchup in the second round. Yeah. I have Oregon also winning out to Virginia. You and I are the same, except I've got Oregon beating Kansas State in the second round. You've got Oregon beating UC Irvine. So we both have Virginia versus Oregon in the Sweet 16. And who do you have in Mississippi, Oklahoma? I went back and forth on that. And just this evening before we started to record, I took a long look at Oklahoma, and I don't like the way they play away from home. Mm-hmm. And I really like the way Mississippi plays away from home. I was tempted to go with the nine just because I felt like I needed a nine, a couple of nines besides Washington. But I just, I, I just at the end of the day, I like Mississippi's team better than I like Oklahoma's team. So I'm, I, I'm staying with Mississippi, and I'm assuming you're going to Oklahoma. No, I'm on Mississippi. Okay, on so Miss- the only dif- the only difference we have in that that little bracket is you have Kansas State and I have Irvine. Okay, and down on the bottom, are you chalky like me? Two and three, Tennessee, Purdue. Tennessee and Purdue, yes. Okay, and yep. who wins the Tennessee Purdue game? Tennessee. I have Tennessee too. Who wins the Virginia Oregon game? Virginia. I have Virginia too. So mm-hmm. Virginia, Tennessee. You've got Virginia or Tennessee? I've got Virginia. Okay, me too. 
we both would kind of like to see Tony Bennett have a good year, wouldn't we? Yeah, after last year going out as a first ever one sixteen, you know, and every year is brand new, so you know that that is that is bygones. But still, you know, they're they've been one of the best teams for the last couple of years. You got to figure they're going to break through at some point. And this 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 might be it. I mean, they have competed in the best league uh, in the ACC, and who would have thought Tony Bennett would not only have uh, a great defensive team, which we expect, but they can score. And um, so, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. But I, I think they're a Final Four team. Bottom right, I'll go first, and I'll make it very okay. easy for you. Okay. Chalk, 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 yeah. except for two situations. Okay. I've got a certain Washington Husky team, and this may be my heart more than my head. I'm just going to tell you that right up. Sure. I'm sure. not sure that my head tells me that Washington's going to win that game. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall backwards and hope that the zone catches me and Matisse Thibel catches me. So yeah. I'm going to take Washington over Utah State. Yep, me too, obviously. Uh, I got everybody else in the first round chalk. Yep, okay? me too. Auburn, Kansas, Houston, Iowa State, Wofford, Kentucky. Me too, yep. Go to the Sweet 16. I've got North Carolina against Kansas, even though I, I'm not high on Kansas I, I just kind of feel like they'll beat Auburn. You're going to tell me that Auburn's going to beat Kansas, but I am. Um, I'm going to. I'm just going to stay with Bill Self and say under the radar, not supposed to do well. Great coach, he'll find a way. I'm just going to say he'll find a way to beat Auburn and get into the Sweet 16. That's all I'm going to say. I may all be right, wrong so you, on that. You yeah. and I differ there. I've got UNC Auburn. Okay, and then yeah. on the bottom, I got a little sleeper for you. Uh, and again, it just might be because. I saw them play a few times, and I really liked, and I just happened to catch them on the right day. You know how this works. You you turn on ESPN, Iowa State's playing in a Big 12 Big Monday game, and yep. you just happen to sit down and watch, and they have a good game that night, and they look good to you, and you say, oh, I'm going to remember that come March. Yeah. So I'm going to take Iowa State over Houston. I'm not. You're going Kelvin Sampson on me. I am. Okay. Uh, I'm going Iowa State over Houston in that game, and I'm taking Kentucky over Wofford, too many athletes. So I've got an Iowa State-Kentucky game, and you've got a Kentucky-Houston game. I do. And I'm assuming we both have North Carolina. You've got North Carolina-Auburn. I've got North Carolina-Kansas. Right, correct. Well, the rubber meets the road because I'm taking Iowa State, even though you don't have them in the game, to Mm -hmm. beat Kentucky to knock the Wildcats out of the NCAA tournament in the Sweet 16. Mitch, I like where your head's at. Because I have Houston beating Kentucky. Ooh, how about that? So, you so got... basically, basically, the winner of the Iowa State-Houston game is going to tell the tale. Okay, so you've got North Carolina over Houston, clearly. Yes. And I've got North Carolina over Iowa State. My Cinderella-Iowa State team comes to an end right there. Yeah. And so, if my memory serves me correctly, because I don't have your bracket in front of me, you've got Duke. Michigan. Michigan. Yep. You've got Virginia. And you've got North Carolina. Correct. You've got three ones and a two. And I've got Michigan State a two, Texas Tech a three, Virginia a one, and North Carolina a one. I got two ones, a two, and a three. We get to the final four, which means you've got you've got Michigan versus Duke. And you know I've already selected Duke as my national champion, so I've I've got Duke. Okay, and I've got Michigan State versus Texas Tech. <laughs> and I'm going to take Tom Izzo and Michigan okay. State into the championship game 
and I'm going to take North Carolina from the other side, and you're going to take North Carolina versus Duke. You're going to have the most common final game in all the brackets throughout the world, all, the millions and millions and millions of brackets around the world. By far and away, I would imagine, by far and away, the most commonly picked national championship game is going to sure. be North Carolina versus Duke. Because in my opinion, they are the two best teams in America. Okay. But the best two teams don't always make it to the but, end. You're right. Uh, but, uh, and I understand that. But I'm saying it is, it is chalky in that way. But it's also uh, kind of, I will tell you this, as a basketball fan, I would love to see that fourth round. I would love to see UNC and Duke play for the fourth time for it all. And I mean, I think that it would only be the second time that both teams are completely healthy, right? Because Zion really didn't play in the first two right. games, right? Correct. And in the game that they did play on a neutral floor, it went right. To, it could have gone either way. It went right down to That's the right. last basket. That's right. right. Yeah. I think it's going to be an unbelievable game if, in fact, it goes that way. So you have Duke over North Carolina in the national championship, and I have North Carolina over Michigan State. That's it. That's it. What's the episode? <sighs> That's it. There's going to be no title to the episode today. You are so fake. <laughs> Here's the way I view it. And I know that you think I'm going to be wrong and you're going to throw water at me and everybody's going to throw, throw shade at me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you did it based on who was better in their sport, performance, we're just talking performance here. Who was a better player? Was Magic Johnson a better basketball player or was Jim Brown a better football player and overall athlete? I think I know that Jim Brown was a better football player and athlete than even Magic Johnson was a basketball player. So I'm tempted to name the episode episode Brownie or Jim Brown. But Magic Johnson meant more than his play on the, on the floor, which was obviously stellar. He, was, he revolutionized the game in his position. I, I don't mean to diminish what he accomplished on the floor. I'm just saying that I think Jim Brown did, was more dominant a football player than Magic Johnson was a basketball player. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be a consideration for the human being that Magic Johnson is and what he just did, he and Larry Bird, for the league. Jim Brown did not do that for the NFL. He and Larry Bird came into the league after that national championship game, and everything changed for the rest of time. For, for, for Michael Jordan and for LeBron James and for everybody who followed, everything changed because of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to figure that into the equation somehow, that intangible. And so... I give to you episode Magic Brown. (laughs) Oh, boy. That is just weak. That is so weak. And with that, enjoy the NCAA tournament there in Columbus, Ohio. I can't wait to chat with you, perhaps on on a patron issue or episode after Washington. Hopefully, hopefully, dispatches of Utah State on Friday night, and I say to you, you want to do the Magic Brown is in the books, or do you want me to do the Magic Brown is in oh, the no, books? Oh, no, this one's all you, my <laughs> pet, my friend. You're going to own this one all the way. Episode Magic Brown is in the books. <laughs>